I propose to speak to you on a very interesting subject about Sri Aurobindo. You know it is his centenary, that is to say, this August he completes a hundred years of earthly existence. I say earthly advisedly because although he has left his body, he has not left earth's atmosphere. The mother assures us he will be there to see the work begun to be completed. I will speak on a very peculiar aspect of Shurabindo's life. Many must have noticed it, but I wish to draw your particular attention to it. Shurabindo's life is an extraordinary phenomenon. It is not that of an ordinary human being. The life of an ordinary man follows a well-marked line of development, almost a routine, good for everybody. The pattern is familiar. You can even foresee and foretell the future and the destiny of a person. You start as a student, join a school, go up to the college. After passing out, you choose a profession, become an engineer or doctor or businessman or something well recognized like that. Then you continue to stick to the job you have chosen. You become a rich man or if you are unfortunate, a poor man, anyhow, go through the experiences of the life allotted to you. You become old, have children, grandchildren, and then pass away. That is the ordinary course of life. In Sri life has a different line, movement and procedure. Strangely, it consists of breaks, sudden unforeseen turns, almost cutting away the past altogether. And then what is to be noted is that these breaks or turns are not quite imposed upon him, but they are normally his own conscious decisions out of his own deliberate will. Except one or two I shall point out as I go on. These turns, however, may not be always a right about turn, but anyhow, I may say, a right turn, a turn to the right, always to the right, until the final, ultimate right is reached. First of all, let us begin from the very beginning. The very first step or turn he took in his early childhood was in fact a complete about turn the antipodes of what he was and where he was. For he was almost uprooted from his normal surroundings and removed across far seas to a distant land. 
From out of an Indian Bengali family, he was thrown into the midst of a British Christian family. He was made to forget his native language, his country's traditions, his people's customs and manners. He had to adopt an altogether different mode of life and thinking, a thoroughly Europeanized style and manner. Naturally, being a baby, this was an occasion, the earliest, when he had not his choice, his own deliberate decision, but had to follow the choice of his father, the choice perhaps of his secret soul and destiny. His father meant well, for he wanted his children to be not only good, but great, according to his conception of goodness and greatness. In that epoch, when the British were the masters of India and we their slaves, in those days the ideal for a person of intelligence and promise, the ideal of success was to become a high government official, a district magistrate or a district judge. That was the highest ambition of an Indian of that time. And naturally Sri Aurobindo's parents and well-wishers thought of Sri Aurobindo in that line. He would become a very famous district magistrate or a commissioner even, the highest position that an Indian could aspire for. So he had to appear at an examination for that purpose. It was called those glittering letters to Indian eyes, I-C-S. Indian Civil Service. Now here was the very first deliberate choice of his own, the first radical turn he took to cut himself away from the normally developing past. He turned away from that line of growth and his life moved on to a different scale. His parents and friends were mortified, such a brilliant boy, come to naught, but he had pushed away the past as another vision allured him and he stuck to his decision. Next, as you all know, he came to Baroda, entered the state service as secretary to the Maharaja and professor of the college. That life was also externally a very normal and ordinary life, an obscure life, so to say, but he preferred obscurity for the sake of his inner development and growth. Still, he continued in that obscure position that was practically what we call the life of a clerk. He continued for some time, some time meant twelve years, the same length as his previous stage. Then a moment came when he changed all that, another volt fast. If he continued, he might have advanced, progressed in his career, that is to say become principal of the college, even the Devon of Baroda, a very lofty position 
a very lofty position indeed for an Indian, become another R.C. Dutt. But he threw all that overboard, wiped off the twelve years of his youthful life, and came to Bengal as a national leader, a leader of the new movement that wanted freedom for India, freedom from the domination of Britain. He jumped into this dangerous life, the uncertain life of a servant of the country, practically without a home, without resources of his own. He ran the risk of being caught by the British, put into prison, or shot or hanged even, but he chose that life. That was a great decision he took, a turnabout entirely changing the whole mood of his life. Eventually, as a natural and inevitable result of his political activities, he was arrested by the British and put into prison. He had to pass a whole year in the prison, and this led to another break from the past, ushering in quite another way of life. The course of his life turned inward and moved from depth to depth. In the prison, one incident happened, which is not known to many, but extremely important and of great consequence. I have mentioned it in my reminiscences. When we were in prison, we thought we were the first batch of political prisoners accused of conspiracy and practically of rebellion against the established government. So. We thought this was the end of our life's journey. One day we'll be taken out and shot, court-martial, and justice was a make-believe and sham. Or if we were lucky enough, we would be exiled to the Andamans, the notorious Kalapani. So a few of our leaders in the prison who were elders to us thought, of escape from the prison, make a dash, break out, scale the walls out in the open. There were plannings with outside helpers. <clears throat> when the plan was a little matured, our elders thought of consulting Sri Aurobindo. Without his consent, naturally, nothing could be done, for he was the leader and guide. So when Sri was informed of the plan, he said bluntly, I am not going to do anything of the kind. I stand the trial. As a natural consequence, the project fell through, and very fortunately for us. It is true he already knew the result of the case, that he would be freed and nothing would happen to him. Still, at that time there was a suspense and we all were in doubt. This decision of Sri Aurobindo was another, I may say, great turn of his life. If he had accepted the prospect, his life and destiny would have been different. We all would have been massacred. In other words, he saved his life for his spiritual work. 
On coming out, he engaged himself again in the national work. The British were truly perturbed and worried because they knew here was the man, the source of all mischief. They did not know how to control and get at him. So they thought of arresting him again and deport him, send him out of the bounds outside India to Burma or some such far-off place. In the meanwhile, he continued to do his work as usual, editing two papers, seeing and advising people, going out on lecturing tours, etc., etc. But it was time for the next break of term. One day, one night, that is to say, all of a sudden, he said, he would go out to an unknown destination and literally he did so, dropped and left things as they were and disappeared. People knew later on that he had gone to Pondicherry. This time it was almost literally wiping out the past. He started an altogether new life, inner and outer. He has started directly his climb to the supramental. Here too, after a few years, came an occasion when he had to take another radical decision, one more turn to the right, to the more, yet more right. The British could not tolerate his existence, his safe existence in India, even though in the then French India. They felt themselves unsafe, for they felt this man could do anything. As France was an ally to the British, there was Entente Cordiale, so they both came to an understanding and made a proposal to Sri Aurobindo. France would gladly receive Sri Aurobindo in their midst, give him safe shelter and quiet circumstances to pursue his spiritual life. France was ready to offer Sri Aurobindo a house, a home in Algeria. Here too Sri Aurobindo answered with a clear and definite no. He said he would stick to the place he had chosen. Sri Aurobindo had some friends and companions who also took shelter in the French territory. They would have liked to accept the proposal to escape from the constant the British persecution, but Sri Aurobindo's decision came as a disappointment to them, but they had to acquiesce. Now, at this distance of time, we can see all the import of his formidable decision half a century ago. There was yet one more crisis, a great crisis, the fate of humanity and also his own destiny. The fate of his work depended upon it. The world was nearing the world-shaking war, the second great war.
It was the invasion of the Asuric forces upon earth to destroy humanity and human civilization and prevent the advent of that truth which Sri Aurobindo was preparing to bring down. Sri Aurobindo opposed that mighty onrush with his will and divine strength. He broke the hostile downward speeding force by taking it into himself, even like God Shiva who swallowed poison and harbored it in his throat to release immortality for the gods. This subtle attack left in him a bruised body, but to man a saved world. He followed up his action by a wholehearted support to the allies in that war against those who were the instruments of the hostile. We come finally now to the last act, the last decision that he took of an almost complete turn, a full cycle. It was his considerate, deliberate decision to move out of the physical, material scene and take his station just in the background from where he could move and direct things more effectively. I have spoken of Sri life as a series of radical turns that change the movement, the mode of life almost radically every time the turn came. The turn meant a break with the past and a moving into the future. We have a word for this phenomenon of radical and unforeseen change. You know the word, it is intervention. Intervention means, as Mother has explained to us more than once, the entry of a higher, a greater force from another world into the already existent world, into the familiar established mode of existence that runs on the routine of some definite rules and regulations, the law of the present, there drops all in a sudden, another mode of being and consciousness and force, a higher law which obliterates or changes out of recognition the familiar mode of living. It is thus that one rises from level to level, moves out into wider ranges of being, otherwise one stands still, remains forever what he is, stagnant, like an unchanging clod, or at the most, a repetitive animal. The higher the destiny, the higher also the source of intervention, that is to say, more radical, more destructive, yet more creative, destructive of the past, creative of the future. I have spoken of the passing away of Sri Bindu as a phenomenon of intervention 
a great decisive event in view of the work to be done. Even so, we may say that his birth too was an act of intervention, a deliberate divine intervention. The world needed it, the time was ripe, and the intervention happened. And that was his birth as an embodied human being to which we offer our salutation and obeisance today. This century salutes a divine birth and a death divine, ushering in a century of diviner moment. As customary, I read out a passage from Savitri, but I was lucky to come across a passage in Savitri which precisely refers to intervention that I spoke of just now, and also of a divine anniversary, a divine birth. It is an experience of Aswapati, as you know. Aswapati, in his yoga, was going, ascending up and up through all the levels of consciousness. So he arrived at a certain stage, a certain level of consciousness, where he had this experience. Ashwabhati, you know, is the climbing soul of man. <clears throat> the immortal sees not as we vainly see. He looks on hidden aspects and screen the powers. He knows the law and natural line of things. Undriven by a brief life's will to act, unharassed by the spur of pity and fear, he makes no haste to untie the cosmic knot or the world's torn, jarring heart to reconcile. 
In time he waits for the eternal hour. Yet a spiritual secret aid is there. While a tardy evolution scoils to wind on, and nature hews her way through adamant, a divine intervention thrones above. Alive in a dead rotating universe, we were not here upon a casual globe, abandoned to a task beyond our force. Even through the tangled anarchy called fate, and through the bitterness of death and fall, an outstretched hand is felt upon our lives. It is near us in unnumbered bodies and births. In its unshaken grasp, it keeps for us safe the one inevitable supreme result. No will can take away and no doom change the crown of conscious immortality, the Godhead promised to our struggling souls when first man's heart dared death and suffered life. One who has shaped this world is ever its Lord. Our errors are his steps upon the way. He works through the fierce vicissitudes of our lives. He works through the harder breath of battle and toil. He works through our sins and sorrows and our tears. His knowledge overrules our initiance. Whatever the appearance we must bear, whatever our strong ills and present fate, when nothing we can see but drift and bail, a mighty guidance leads us still through all. After we have served this great divided world, God's bliss and oneness are our inborn right. A date is fixed in the calendar of the unknown, an anniversary of the birth sublime. Our soul shall justify its checkered walk. All will come near that now is not or far. These calm and distant mites shall act at last, immovably ready for their destined task. The ever-wise compassionate brilliances await the sound of the incarnate's voice to leap and bridge the chasms of ignorance and heal the hollow yearning gulfs of life and fill the abyss that is the universe. Here, meanwhile, at the spirit's opposite pole, in the mystery of the deeps that God has built 
for his abode below the thinker's sight, in this compromise of a stark absolute truth with the light that dwells near the dark end of things, in this tragic comedy of divine disguise, this long far-seeing for joy ever near, in the grandiose dream of which the world is made, in this gold dome on a black dragon base, the conscious force that acts in nature's breast, a dark-robed laborer in the cosmic scheme, carrying clay images of unborn gods, executrix of the inevitable idea, hampered, enveloped by the hopes of fate, patient trustee of slow eternal time, absolves from hour to hour her secret charge. All she foresees in masked imperative depths, the dumb intention of the unconscious gulfs, answers to a will that sees upon the heights, and the evolving words, the first syllable, ponderous, brute-sensed, contains its luminous close, privy to a summit victory is a vast descent, and the portent of the soul's immense uprise. <laughs>